You're listening to Pirate Cat Radio, KPCRLP, 92.9 FM, Los Gatos and beyond. Hi, I'm Sarah Tomlinson, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. Get on the Drinks with Tony show. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Sarah Tomlinson. She's the author of The Last Days of the Midnight Ramblers. Sarah, how are you? I'm great today, Tony. How are you? Yeah, I'm all right. I'm all right. Excited to talk to you. Your first novel, but you've been writing forever. How does it feel? Literally. <laughs> it feels <laughs> incredible. It's um, exciting, gratifying, um, a little overwhelming. Honestly, I did decide I was going to be a novelist when I was 16. I was lucky enough to go to early college. And I say lucky because I got to drop out of high school, which for many of us is the dream. <laughs> and I got to start college early. And I took my first creative writing workshop, a fiction workshop when I was 16. And I was like, this is it. This is the life for me. And yeah. then, you know, just an overnight success. 30 years later, I sell my first novel. And so, you know, it's just real easy. Isn't it? Yeah, it's just, it's only decades. It's only decades. <laughs> just, just decades. Just Hang time going by. <laughs> oh my God, I just you just reminded me when you said that, because you know how you remember your dreams in spurts or sometimes you remember them when someone says something and yeah. you just said that and I was telling someone in there, I, I was talking to someone who was like 30 years old and I was like, you know, you have like 20,000 days left on earth. You got to, you, you got to spend them right. I was like sitting there lecturing someone on it. I'm sure I was lecturing myself, right? But anyway, that's that's funny. I was like telling people, I was trying to compute everyone's in the room. I was trying to compute how many days they had left on earth and how they had how they needed to spend them right. Well, thankfully, I just accomplished my life stream. So sure. Bring yeah. it on, Tony. If I you just if you tell me I only have 100 days left, that's fine. You know, I mean, what what else can I really accomplish after bringing my life stream to fruition? Is it, <laughs> oh, I'm going to write another novel. That's that's actually what's happening. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. It doesn't go away. But is it if you knew it's if you it's it's almost it's fun that ignorance is bliss, because if you knew as a 16 year old that it would take 30 years. Would you, would you, what would you have done with that information? It's almost too much information because 30 years is like, that's old people time when you're that kid. Um, yes, I probably would not have believed it. Also, I was very stubborn as we are at 16. And so I was like, no, you're wrong. And you might be like, I literally have a crystal ball. I can see your future. And I would be like, nope, I'm going to do it in three years. <laughs> yeah. But one thing I, I, one thing I do like to talk about, um, cause I don't, feel like I hear it get discussed enough. There's so much talk about craft, which can be very helpful. And obviously as a writer, you do have to work on your craft and you do have to learn yeah. how to express yourself and um, how to tell a story and how to successfully bring it to fruition for the reader. But there's so much for me, at least personally, about learning to live as a writer. And so even as a teenager, I was very curious about like how many cups of coffee does a writer that I admire drink, you know, like oh, what are yeah. their habits? And of course now mm. those sort of morning habits and stuff are very hip. Like people love to do interviews where they talk about how they start their day or what's in their smoothie. But 30 years ago when I was starting out, you know, I was reading more like biographies from the library of like Virginia Woolf or someone and, and, and uh, looking for hacks uh, from her morning schedule. Um, and I do think that a lot of what kept me going for those 30 years was aspects of writing that are so important, like community, like um, yes, finding out what you do have to say. And a lot of finding out what you do have to say comes from living, not from writing, right? If you're just only at your computer or at your notebook, you don't really have much to say. And there's a, a story I like to tell about um, one of my favorite writing professors, Peter Sorian, and uh, I had graduated from Bard with my, uh, you know, bachelor's in creative writing. And I had gone out to Portland, Oregon and was like waiting tables and buying records and just, you know, hanging out and trying to learn how to be a writer. That's living the dream. If we look back Completely. at that time, it's exactly what I was doing. And man, that's lit. I, I was at Amoeba Records yesterday, just like buying records going, how do you, how do you have these like records for a dollar? You don't know the 50 year old dudes who used to do college radio, who would have killed to buy this for 20 bucks now. And it's a dollar. Thank you. I was thanking all the employees. 
It, I mean, it is so <clears throat> fun um, having that time. And, and again, like I was learning to be a writer, right? I was going and drinking coffee and buying records, but I, I did get tired of waiting tables because it's um, a good skill to have, but it's also exhausting. And, and humanity sucks. Yes. And someone did leave me a bullet once as a tip. I was like, yeah. that's just terrible. Like, please, yeah. like I'm already cleaning up after you. You really don't need to leave a bullet on the table. That's there's nothing yeah. good. That I had to, that. I had to get out of I, the restaurant industry paid well and I had to get out of it because I was starting to want to kill people. I was like, yeah, I was wishing homicide. And I'm like, I think I need to stop doing this and get a lower paying job. You're like, this is not good for my spirit. And whatever yeah. I'm going to use the extra money for is actually, it's like diminishing returns. It's suddenly, I might as well be working something for less money that is not going to make me uh, need to spend a lot of money on therapy or whatever it is. Right, exactly. Um, yeah. They, they, how, what is, just, drive, just driving slowly by like, um, by psychiatric hospitals going, I could go now. I can go now. I don't got enough cash. Just go to work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so I did call my favorite creative writing professor and ask him to write me a letter of recommendation because I was going to go get my MFA, as many writers do and many writers find very useful. Mm -hmm. And he said, let me ask you a question. And at this point, I'm like 19 years old, maybe 20 at the oldest. He says, do you write every day? And I said, oh, well, you know, I mean, mostly kind of, sort of. And he's like, you don't need to get an MFA right now. He's like, you need to get a job, you need to fall in love and you need to write every day. And when you do that, then call me up and I will write you a letter of recommendation. Oh, course, I like that. He withheld that great? it until isn't you that did great? their work. Yeah. Yeah. And also, cause I had just come out of a rigorous program and obviously undergraduate is not the same as graduate, but I had been in writing workshops. I knew how to take notes. I knew how to revise. And so he was like, well, what, what is she really going to get out of the MFA? She's just going to be deferring the inevitable, which is that she's going to have to learn how to be a writer on her own at some point, you know, with the community. Yes, but not in a structured academic setting. So I did. I was working at a Caribbean restaurant as a waitress. I did fall in love and I did not start writing every day, but more regularly. And through that process, you know, you bring some things to completion. You have the chance to see if they work or they don't. I found some people to read my writing um, and also read their writing. And it was a nice community. And then when I did finally go to graduate school, because I was like, yeah, I, I cannot keep waiting tables. It's not good for my spirit. I decided to get a trade. And so I went to journalism school when that was still a thing you could do and earn a living from. And, well, weren't those um, the days? Oh, my God. I, know, I was I was I there, too. And it, just, it, yeah. it blows my mind how it went from like. And it was just it was just lemmings off a cliff. It's just like, you know what? I'm stepping aside. You guys go ahead. Yeah. I always say my writing career has been like jumping from one melting iceberg to another melting iceberg. And so <laughs> journalism was the first one. And for a while, I mean, I went to grad school in 1999 and, uh -huh. you know, I was freelancing for the Boston Globe. I became a music journalist, which was the most fun job in my 20s and was also great for my writing because I literally only got paid if I hit a deadline. And so I had deadlines every day and I was doing CD reviews and concert reviews and features about bands. And I loved Loved all the people I was writing about. And so I wanted to do a good job for them, but I wasn't too precious about it because I had never been a musician. You know, I, I wasn't as, um, you know, uptight about like, is it perfect as I was with my own writing at that age. And so, oh, interesting. yeah, it was, like, I, used, I used to be a music journalist. I, I did music and books for the San Francisco Chronicle for about eight oh, years. Oh yeah. That's amazing. What a great paper. Yeah. Yeah. It used to be. <laughs> Yeah. Unfortunately, um, a lot of once great papers sadly have just been eviscerated. Um, yeah. But, so um, but I, the, the going out every night and seeing like four, seeing four shows a week. And, and then the other problem is and getting free drinks all the time. It's like once in a while, you're just, I, I'm glad I moved to LA. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, how did I do that? Man, let's get my liver tested again. Dude, your levels are fine. Oh, okay. <laughs> So. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that anyone has the budget to give writers free drinks anymore, but I was I was of that generation as well, where the record label would actually take you out for drinks or yeah. you know, make sure there was an open bar at the show. And um, somehow I always hit my deadlines. I think also the fear of starvation, again, is just a really powerful motivator. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, I, I've written a lot of articles starting at 3 a.m. and turning them, turning them in at 7 a.m. while the buzz was wearing off <laughs> to get to my editor's desk. It's brutal, but it will uh, get get you disciplined. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're doing music journalism, and then mm -hmm. and then uh, and then what 
So we there's the is the next melting. Then you hit ghostwriting, right? You've been I did. So um, is that as, melt? Is that melting the iceberg as well right now? Well, I wouldn't <clears> say that it's melting. Um, there is still a big market for a lot of the types of books that tend to be ghostwritten, and I've heard your episode about your own ghostwriting experience. Oh, so you did. Okay, that, that did make me laugh. <laughs> let me, and my, let me yeah. apologize. No. No, it was it was fascinating. And, you know, I've bumped up against not exactly what you did, but, you know, I've I've seen what you were talking about, um, which it's is the people... bottom of the barrel stuff. And I needed money really good. I, I mean, I needed money bad and really fast. So I was doing it was n nothing was. Yeah, you were you heard I was I was dealing with real estate agents who wanted to become self-help coaches about how great real estate being a real estate agent was. And they hated everything about their work, their jobs. And I'm just like, you guys are disgusting human beings. <laughs> so you want to make money I, off something you hate and pretend right, it's and, good? And get other people to do it so they can hate yeah. it too. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, luckily, I haven't encountered that. And when I did books that were slightly more, um, I guess you would say like not for the big five, um, they were more like um, spirituality books because there's also sort of a, a smaller press community that does a lot of books around meditation and wellness. And so at least that community, I, that even, I like, yeah, See, I'm, the, and, I'm a hippie. So that's awesome. Me, me as well. And, and the, the paychecks weren't as big for me or for the author as they call the person who is putting their name on the book. <clears throat> but I knew that their intentions were good, right? They yes. wanted, they believed that they genuinely had something that could help people and they wanted to put it out into the world and whether or not that actually happened. Cause not all of those books did eventually make it to the world. I was like, well, I can, I can sleep at night with this, but what yeah. is interesting, and I think you probably were a part of this in what you were doing is there, you know, used to be even up to maybe five years ago, this understanding that having a book with your name on it was an important part of your platform, right? If you were an entrepreneur, if you were a real estate agent, if you were a wellness coach, and theoretically, it would get you on like Good Morning America, right? That's the right. dream. You get to go yeah. on the morning show or your local morning show, you know, like coffee with Tina or whatever. Yeah. And so people really wanted to do those books. I think there also was a time when uh, having a TED talk was a part of your platform. And then either right. people would take their book, take their book and turn it into a TED talk or take their TED talk and turn it into a book. And I think now um, it's become a little bit more questionable because no one really understands what their platform is anymore. I mean, as we've just been talking about, mainstream media has been eviscerated so much that there just aren't as many places for you to go and promote your book once you have it done. And because even with a ghostwriter or a co-writer, it's so much work to write a book. I think we have to think of new methods of getting information across, but I don't know that anyone really has the answer of what that's going to be because you can say, oh, we'll just go online, just have a social media presence. But the beauty of books is that they do allow you to and insist that you go deeper on a subject, yes. right? Like you just <clears throat> cannot get into something in an Instagram post like you can in a book. And so that's why I still stand by the value of books and still believe they're an important part of our culture, both, you know, in terms of creativity and in terms of thinking and in terms of, um, you know, communicating with each other as humans. Um, but in terms of the industry of making books, which is more what we're talking about when we talk about ghostwriting, I do think there's a lot of question marks right now about, um, you know, what, what is selling, what readers want and how to give it to them. The, the magic of it. And I like that you brought this up is when we read a book, we, we, it, 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 it gets into our thinking. There's a, di there's a different, it, it's different than an Instagram post. It's different than a podcast. I listen to podcasts and I'm like, okay, this is good. And I know I'm just getting the surface, but I'm writing to the, I'm like, this guy is interesting. And I'm writing his name down and I'm, you know, ordering the book and I'm reading the book and I'm like, okay, yeah, he's way interesting. Is when you, it's like, once the book is in hand, that's when you're, it doesn't change your life in this, you know, you're going to be uh, raptured into heaven. It changes your life just a nudge. You know, yeah. I, I just feel like my, even reading, especially reading novels, mm -hmm. I, um, I think a novel changes people's lives more than nonfiction. If you're, if you just, cause you could really sink into it you could sink into the author. Um, the author, you know, I mean, that being a novelist is not a good financial choice. <laughs> it's only, but, but it's like, I have to do it. And so there's, 
it's it's what makes me feel okay like it's just there's there's just like oh it makes me feel okay to write and to read and this is like everything in my life like this this is what i can always come back to and there's a beauty to it and um that's when writing a novel is like thinking about the marketing stuff. Oh, just, I, I just want it in someone else's hands, man. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just writing this. And you know what? I know this probably is not going to work in 2024, but it might work in 2028. So not the next one, next one, next one. It's, um, it's, uh, I, I'm a little, uh, for me, I mean, novels, novels actually just changed me so much. And I was in such a, bad place a few times in my life and it was novels that actually saved my soul and so that's in, in a way where i was like they're talking to me like no one's ever talked to me before and i'm and i get to have this conversation that's so even if it's a even if it's a comedy it's just it hits something a little bit it just hits a little bit and that it's so great yeah i have to agree with you because i think when i've read well-written nonfiction books. I have learned about a world. I have learned about mm -hmm. a person. I have sometimes changed my opinion on something, definitely yeah. become more informed. But when <clears> I read <throat> a novel, it's like someone is showing me who they are. It's very affirming for me as a human, because I think I'm very curious about other people, about why they do things in the same way I was saying, I've always been curious about writers and artists, you know, how do mm -hmm. they live their life? What is important to them? And that's what I right to figure out, you know, my characters are um, stand-ins for humans, they're humans, you know, on the page. And yeah. I'm curious, you know, what is meaningful to them? And I, I, um, you know, for example, when I was creating the world of my book, The Last Days of the Midnight Ramblers, I knew that my ghostwriter character, Mari, was going to need to write a memoir for someone, right? And so then I thought, well, who is the memoir going to be for? Like, what would be meaningful to me? And when I tell people I'm a ghostwriter, one of the first responses I get is kind of, um, you know, sort of like joking, but like negative towards celebrities. Like, oh my gosh, they must be so dumb. Like they can't even write a book and you do all the work and they get all the credit. And I'm like, well, almost everyone I've worked with has been incredibly intelligent at something. What They did not have the privilege of the education that I had because they were often working, but they've been very talented as actors, as sports figures, as entrepreneurs, as, I mean, even just the level of charisma or the level of focus it took to get to where they were was exceptional. And so I don't think there's anything wrong with them hiring someone to work on their book with them. And I often compare it to being like a sound engineer or a producer in the studio, right? We have like brilliant bands who are great at songwriting and great at musicianship, and we wouldn't expect them to know how to work the soundboard. And exactly. I did have the privilege of that education. And so I do know how to put a book together and I do know how to, um, you know, work on pacing and expectations and payoff and all of those things that can make a book more satisfying than not. So I have a lot of respect for the celebrities I've worked with. And then on top of that, I wanted my character Mari to interact with some older, more experienced figures, her clients who she writes for, who did have something to teach her, not just yes. about being <clears throat> famous, because I don't think being famous is that interesting. And many people who are famous will tell you that. And I think in our culture, we have such awe for it that we say, well, you're just saying that, like, you're just trying to be modest. But I do think it's sort of a closed box. Like, I don't know that if I examined fame or celebrity specifically for the length of a whole book, there'd really be much I'd come out with on the other end that was fresh or new or taught me about something, especially for other people who aren't famous. And so I wanted Mari's clients to have lived exceptional lives original lives that were meaningful to them. And then as they told her their, their stories for her to start to think about what would be a meaningful life for her. And it wasn't specifically, I don't want to give it away, but I wasn't specifically trying to point her towards, towards being an artist herself. It was really deeper than that on a human level. And, and who knows, maybe she will become an artist. Like I'm not going to give away the end. And obviously because she is a human, she goes on past the pages of the book. Yeah. You know, she has a whole life. Um, but I really want wanted uh, her clients, Anka and Dante, to to be, um, whether whether the reader likes them or not, I mean, they're strong personalities, they're a little eccentric. I wanted the reader to believe like, yeah, they, they actually 
did something of value in our culture. And I could see why Mari would like and respect them and want to draw close to their story. And I think I'd like to draw close to their story too on the pages of the book. It blows my mind how much um, people, I, I think people are challenged when they talk about celebrity because they want to be, a, the people that poo-poo it so much have an achingness for they, wishing they were that person. And it's, and they don't even, they they haven't been around celebrity where people are just kind of like, people are looking at you, but they're not looking at you. Like, you know, it's like, it's the way we look at each other. It's the whole see and be seen that we need as human beings. And when everyone's ogling you because you did an Oscar winning performance and worked your butt off for a year, you know, and to get to, to get on set for two months and then you're offset doing promotion. And it's just like, that's not you. That's just your craft. And it's, um, so they're looking at, so just the way people look at you has got to be daunting for them. And it, you know, we had, we just had the Super Bowl and the people go banging on and on about how much they hate Taylor Swift. I see it, you know, even on my friends list in Facebook. And I'm like, Oh, it just grosses me out. I, I I couldn't name a Taylor Swift song, but I have I'm good for her. That's all I in my head. That's all right. I. It's right. Like, why great. would you? Why yeah. would you waste time of your precious life hating her? You know, like I just yeah. don't understand it. I mean, I guess we're in a culture where it's very um, attractive and celebrated to have strong opinions about everything, and so oh, I guess gross. there is. Yeah, I guess those there are the is people community. I hated in school. <laughs> all the people I hated in high school are now the world. <laughs> I mean, that is that is true or at least they're they're the people in the world who have the microphone so to speak because right they're 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 like mouthing off the most but um yeah i don't i, I have spent quite a bit of time around celebrity both as a music journalist and as a ghostwriter and a i couldn't do it if i didn't have some respect and admiration for them because it would just be a terrible life and b um i i do think I've found that mostly, as you were just alluding to, like, it took a lot of work and a lot of focus and perseverance to get to where they were. And so even if I'm not specifically passionate about the field that they're in, like, I can always learn something from watching someone who's just exceptional at their life. And especially when you're in, you know, close spaces with them, like, how they talk to their assistant, how they talk to their spouse, how they yeah. run a very busy and varied schedule. Um, and so I, I don't know. I guess I'm just also not a jaded person. Like I'm just really curious and I like other people and I, and I feel um, privileged when I'm invited into their space, especially to ghostwrite with them because it is such an intimate experience and it does involve such a level of trust. And so um, I would never go into it um, with anything other than, you know, curiosity and and the hope for admiration. And as Mari says in the beginning of the book, or as the narrator says, who's sort of a stand-in for Mari, you know, uh, she feels unconditional love for all of her clients. And it was only in the writing of that prologue that I realized I had felt unconditional love for my clients. But when I did get that, it was so profound because I was like, no wonder I've enjoyed this career. And, yeah. you know, to go to go back to what you asked me in the beginning, what if I had known it was going to take me 30 years? Of course, when I got into ghostwriting 15 years ago, I thought it was a passing um, job that I would just do a few books and my novels would start to come out and a few books became 20 books. And um, it's been an incredibly rewarding career. And I've gotten to live in the book world. You know, I've had really talented editors, um, copy editors, the agents of my clients have been fascinating people. We all love books. We're all trying to do the best we can, even if it's not considered like high literature. Um, we still want it to be good. We still want it to be informative and exciting yeah. and interesting to the reader. And so it's been a really nice life and I'm grateful for that. <clears throat> How did you get into ghostwriting? So when I moved to Los Angeles, which I did in 2006, and I always say, I'm not sure how you got here, but, um, you know, many people fall in love with New York City, which because I had lived on the East Coast, but I was in Boston instead of New York. And I, of course, appreciate New York and have had amazing times there, but I didn't, I, I didn't ever fall in love with it. And for some reason, when I came to Los Angeles, I just completely fell in love with it. And I don't mean Rodeo Drive and I don't mean Beverly Hills, although they're beautiful. I fell in love you with You mean East Disneyland. <laughs> no, <I'm kidding. laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I fell in love with, I fell in love with like the bodegas and and yes. the um the Bougainvillea and the 
um, the taco trucks and, mm -hmm. and just this whole landscape that was incredibly exotic to me as someone who had grown up in Maine, which is very New England, very, very different. And so when I moved out here in 2006, I started out as a music journalist. I was freelancing for the Los Angeles Times, and that was a great paper with a great entertainment section. And they started going through difficult times, and they declared bankruptcy, and they cut what they were paying their freelancers. And so I had already not been making a great living, but then it was getting harder and harder. Isn't it crazy? Yeah, the, those pay cuts. I, I did two articles for the LA Times, I think, in 2017, and those were like my last two I ever did. Just because it was because they were offered to me, but I I cut myself off from the Chronicle in 2015 because it was just like, oh, we're gonna pay you less and you got to work twice as much, and I'm like, huh, no, I'm out. Yeah, there just comes a point where it's not um, workable anymore, yeah. and I do think <clears throat> I'm so grateful that I started as young as I did because I had stamina then, and I kind of didn't know any better and. I will say one thing I found in newspapers, and I'd be curious to hear if you did as well, was that there was at one point a great um, both formal and informal mentorship program. And so I had editors who really worked with me in the beginning, even though I knew something about writing and I knew something about journalism, there's still an art and a craft to a very thoughtful, well-realized CD review, which is only, I don't know, a couple hundred words, right? How do you get an artist's whole career and uh, how this one CD or release fits into that career. And is it in keeping with what they've done or is it a departure? And how do you do that in a few hundred words and also give a sense of what the music sounds like? And so I really was worked with and I'm grateful for that. I don't know if there's even time or enough staff to do that anymore. Um, but I do think hopefully there are still young writers who have the stamina and uh, the part-time jobs as baristas to come in and do this work, you know, for these papers that are still sort of at the height of what a paper can be. And, um, you know, God bless them. Cause I don't have that stamina anymore. No, yeah. Um, but, but I do hope cause it could, cause it was so great for my writing. I, I it was yeah. a great experience. Yeah. Hitting those deadlines and having, and then, um, just, you know, how editors used to work with writers. It's just, it's, it's, I mean, there's just and, and, uh, anyone under like 35 who's an editor right now does not know how to work with writers. <laughs> it's just like, it's these, it's the people who would just be like, you know, they, they have the short, the shorthand on how to talk to a writer. And it's, it's not easy to learn the shorthand of how to talk to a writer and the writer just, you know, all you need to say is like three things it's instead of going over what's wrong and doing, you know, it's just like, oh, this, this, and this, and it's just like, got it. And you go rewrite it's, and there's, there's a, there's such a sexy beauty to that. And also the editors that would fight for you for, um, to, to their managing editors, which I didn't realize how much my editor was fighting to the managing editor. And, I, and it's just like. I'm like, oh, wow. Okay. It's she's just, and there would be a few times where she's like, you got the tapes for this, right? Cause we may get some, you know, pushback on this. I'm like, I always do. Don't worry about it. <laughs> and I never take anything out of context. It's so it's, uh, <laughs> it's, well, it's incredible. It's, I mean, what an education again in like, it's, it's in the craft of writing and storytelling, but also in integrity and in, um, uh, uh, you know, backing things up and not just going for the easy answer. Like, sure, it's it would be um, gratifying to have like the bigger story, but you can't back it up. But no, like when when someone's fighting for you, you're really making sure you can back it up, right? Because yeah. you're like, oh my goodness, like this is uh, something I want to respect enough to be able to uh, not have them get in professional trouble for fighting for me, right? So, right. oh I, yeah, I, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. couldn't even fathom being in that situation, which it's yeah, but. I guess that's why I haven't done it for a while. <laughs> when, when editor, you know, when new editors start coming in and just doing clickbait title stuff, and it's then I'm just like, I don't going, oh, you just you cringe at the titles that start coming out, and you're just like, oh, that's just trying to get eyeballs. I get it. A good editor does good titling, but um, yeah. Anyway, oh, we could do like three hours on this. So it's, yeah, we could. And oh, here we go. Like... Let's start. <laughs> I, <know. laughs> I mean, I I think. The problem is that I don't have any answers and and I think a lot of the editors and the managing editors don't either. I mean, we're we're fighting yeah. for the the attention spans that are diminishing in a time of increasing competition for any type of um 
time, energy, money that, you know, a reader is going to give to you. And so I like, as I think we both are saying, like, we're grateful for the time we had in journalism, grateful to not have to do it anymore, because it's it's really tricky. And I, I do respect my peers who are still like in the trenches fighting the good fight, because um, it must be really hard, because I, I do think most of them care about the community and storytelling or the arts or whatever area they're in. And yeah. um, I, I think they're under a lot of pressure. And so when I jumped from that melting iceberg, um, I did jump into ghostwriting and it was a very LA uh, happening. It was just a friend of a friend um, had started teaching transcendental meditation and wanted to get out of more pop culture ghostwriting, which she had been doing quite successfully and into more wellness ghostwriting and, um, you know, sort of lifestyle books. And so she was up to write a book with this woman named Tila Tequila, uh, who was a bisexual reality TV star. And the, the mutual friend we had was not interested in pursuing this project. And so it came to me and I said, sure, I'll, I'll go ahead and, and meet with Tila and see what it's like. And um, I'm not sure what Tila is going through these days. I mean, there has been some questionable stuff that has come out in the past few years that has been expressed by Tila on um, social media. And I have not had contact with her in you know 15 years. But at the time, she was very professional, very easy to work with, very excited about having a book, um, really wanted it to be helpful to young people who were bisexual and were trying to figure out um, dating and love and relationships and how to um, talk to their families about it and talk to their friends about it. And so uh, not only did she take a chance on me, which you always need someone to do to get started mm -hmm. in anything. And so I'll respect her for that. <laughs> um, but also my editor was this um, really talented guy named Brant Rumble. It was at Scribner, which is an imprint of Simon & Schuster. And he had been Chuck Klosterman's editor. And so I had always admired mm. Chuck's work. I'd had the chance to interview him. And I've I thought, interviewed oh, him a couple times too. Isn't yeah. he great? Yeah. He's for, like, for drinks with Tony. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. I have to go back and listen to those. So he's like yeah. so thoughtful and he's known as sort of a pop culture like thought leader. So I was like, oh my goodness, I'm going to get to work with Chuck Klosterman's editor. So that's yeah. only going to make me better. This is going to be my first book in publishing. Um, and Brandt was incredible to work with. And um, and we had a great experience. And yes, like that book would be considered kind of frothy, um, but it was overall super positive. And then I started working with my agent Kirby because uh, he was the agent on that. Uh, he was working for the agency that was representing Tila and helping her to find a collaborator. And so from there, he started finding more work for me and we've been working together ever since. And um, I did not consciously think I'm shifting from journalism to mm -hmm. ghostwriting, but I just kept getting work in that field. And I found that I really enjoyed the opportunity to spend more time with a subject to, um, spend more time on my writing. Um, and I liked the like longer gestation period of a book. And yes. so it just, it worked very well for me. And speaking of attention spans, I think I, I do have hope for, for the book because like just books in general, the, the medium of the book, I, I was, I was in the, I was in New York. I was in New York a year ago and I, I, I love New York and I just, I gotta, I just, I have to get there once or twice a year just to feel okay. I don't know why it's where I'm at in my life, <clears throat> but I was at the, um, I was uh, near museum row and I was taking myself on a date to the Met. Mm -hmm. It was, it was my last day there. And I was like, I canceled like everybody. I'm just like, I just need to be alone and take myself on a date to the, to a museum. I love and, that. Yeah. And there was, there's like, I don't know if you've been uh, to that area, but there's a cafe that looks like a kind of a cathedral when you walk in across oh, the it's, street. It's it's at the Noya museum. It's the um, Sabarsky's. I think it's called. It's like yeah. a, it's so I love it because my family is Hungarian on my dad's side and it's okay. an Aust Austro-Hungarian cafe. So it's sort of like, uh, a, a representation of like pre-World One, pre-World War One Austria, and they have the wonderful torts there and the coffees, and oh. it's just so lovely. It's one of my favorite places in New York. I love that you're mentioning this. Yeah, and I, and I was, and I didn't even know it. I just was like, uh, "Hi, you know, like <laughs> guy who's not from here." Um, sits down and uh, I get my breakfast and the coffee and and I'm reading yeah at the time I'm reading Proust you know I'm, I've been trying to as I'm, one does yes of course <laughs> yeah I'm I'm on volume four now I think I was on um, volume two so uh, I'm I'm doing it very slowly but I was just sitting there reading it and and there was this guy he, he had to be about twenty twenty one and he had War and Peace 
and and the cafe was really crowded. So at the end, of, at when I was done, I walked over to him and I was like, "How's the book?" And me and him had this like great conversation for about ten minutes, and he was telling me what. And I'm sitting there looking at him, going, "Oh my God, you're in your twenties." You just want to, I want to kiss, tell the world, tell the world what it's doing to you. Books are still fun. Books are still sexy. Books are still important. Yeah. And it it was just, and and, and he was so into it. And I'm just, and it just gave me so much hope because I think there is a, there is a population large enough and it may be the same percentage of people who have read books in the nineties and the aughts as it is now. And that would still be great because that just means that we're, you know, cause a lot of people are like, Oh, I haven't read a book in like five years. And I'm just like, oh, why are we friends? <laughs> it's, it's, I have not, I have nothing in common with you. Um, and it's, you know, not to sound snooty. It's just, it's just a beautiful, you know, and then they, and then they're up on every single reality show on uh, Netflix and you're just going, get a book. Get a book. It'll make you a better Even get, person. Get a book about a reality show. I've done some of those and you can actually learn more from reading the book. So yeah, <laughs> there's a well, book about everything. And 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 I have done some some books about um, you know, real housewives and people who've been on Dancing with the Stars. And again, when you're getting into the behind the scenes, um, you know, intrigues, um, often difficulties, painful experiences. Like that's where people really talk about their human experience of being on that show. And again, even though it can seem very frothy, like they're all humans having an experience, right? They're just not, uh, engaging with it on camera because that's not what the show is about. The show is about the drama and the ratings and the, you know, all of the stuff. But, um, anyhow, I, I would say read a book on any subject, you know, it's great to, yeah. Yeah. Even read those pop-up books where the thing yeah. comes up and yeah. <laughs> if you need to start there, you start there and I'll still have great respect for you. And I'll be like, how is that pop-up book? Exactly. <laughs> the, um, and then the, you know, the idea of reality shows, what we're consuming, you know, what we consume when we're watching a reality show is an edited, you know, three to five minute segment of this person that broadcasts to the world. And there's so many more dimensions to actually what gets done in order to get that small segment. And, you know, people just don't understand how much hard work goes into just creating television or creating a movie where it's just like, oh, you just show up and film some stuff. And it's just like, no, (laughs) it's like, like writing a novel. You just, you just start writing. Anybody can do it, which is, you know, the people who I was working with, my my ghostwriting people, had no respect for writing because they never read books. <laughs> the ones I ghostwrote for never read books. I'm just like, what's the last book you read? Oh, I listened to an audio book that Tony Robbins did, and I'm like, okay, so you li- so essentially you listen to podcasts of right. okay, great, you know, read it on the page. Not that well, I not that I poo poo audio books, but there's a different experience. There's a you know. Like, like, here's my thought on audiobooks. Audiobooks is a one night stand on the page is a relationship. Yeah, because you do have to bring your your focus and your consciousness and sort of your vulnerability. Like if you're you can't have walls up when you're reading a book, because if you're really going to engage with the material, especially a novel, um, you have to be present with it and you have to be really thoughtful about it and um so i agree with that yeah i love books i know i do too i mean they, yeah my, my story is a little different how i got into books but i did i, I didn't go straight to novels when, when i was in my 20s and i didn't i didn't even really read books until then all i read was like bible stuff that was published <laughs> by one certain organization i had to read everything through them because everything else was satan so when I was having suicidal ideations in a major way, I just went to the library because the elders weren't helping me. And I read Tony Robbins and I read Wayne Dyer. And I was just, cause I was just yeah. like, where's the psychology section right. where it's where the, where's the book that says how not to kill yourself. And they're like, Oh, wow. you again. Oh, uh, another one of you. Okay. <laughs> so for there, hope you get through it, you know? And, um, and that, and then it was next to the poetry section, and then that's, and then I just started walking through the stacks, sad and depressed, and was just pulling out books, and that's how I found novels, and that's how I found books that talk to me, and then that's when my whole life changed. Mm-hmm. It's it, it happens. 
No, I love that. I think there's something so affirming about books. And once you've had that experience of that first moment of peace you can get when you connect with an idea or a person beyond yourself, I think that's like a flicker of hope in a in a very dark time, as it sounds. And all you need, hopefully, for for most people, and obviously some people are in such a dark place that it's not enough. But 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 it sounds like for you it was is like you have this one moment of of positivity or of hope, or it's just not quite as bad as the moment before it was. And then you're like, okay, I can feel a little better. And then yeah. you might get curious about what else is out there, you know, what's on the shelf next to that book, you know, right. and, and it sounds like you were finding stuff that was even more and more intoxicating and exciting and affirming as you were going and finding stuff that was closer to who you are and, and what's, uh, you know, exciting for you as a human. Um, and that's why libraries and bookstores are so beautiful, that sort of browsing experience, you know, and, and just it's whether it's our intuition or um, who knows how we find that book we really need. Um, sometimes staff, you know, those incredible citizens of the world, librarians and booksellers um, who've dedicated their life to knowing what's on the shelves. And, and also sometimes, you know, it's through conversation. And sometimes I think it is through sort of intuition. I have been handed books that I needed by people who somehow just knew it was the book for me at that moment. And it, it can be so life-changing. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, uh, it, and, and that's the, be yeah, that's, that's the beauty of it. And that's why books, that bookstores, and especially libraries, it, it's um, we used to be able to walk through much more through the stacks of thousands of thousands of books. And now that seems to be kind of taken to the back now. And so there's less stacks. Um, and I miss those stacks because mm -hmm. I, I would just I would be gone in there forever and just looking for it, looking for the one. You know, it's almost like trying to get your trying to get the right heroin. I don't <laughs> I, oh, that is a little too black tar for me. Can you give me something, you know? Well, or, you know, just to give a um, easy word pun or the right heroin with an E on the end. Oh, there you go. Yeah. I couldn't resist. I love a no, pun. No, that's good. That's really good. Yeah. That is good. What, what, what's, uh, what's a book that when you were young, were you uh, like when you were, because hey, being, being that young and knowing you wanted to be a writer just intrigues me so much. So, so what's a book where you're, where you remember and went, oh man. I'm in. Oh, crap. They got me. Well, I remember. Uh, so I took my first fiction workshop when I was 16. And then for my 17th birthday, uh, my best friend at the time, who also was an aspiring writer, bought me a hardcover copy of The Secret History by Donna Tartt. And hardcovers were just so like exotic and expensive, you know, yeah. and at that point they probably cost just below $20, but I bought most of my books secondhand in paperback. Oh, yeah. Um, and so the fact that she had, you know, shelled out for this hardcover version and I still have it, it was beautiful. The way that they had done the, um, production of it was just gorgeous. And Donna Tartt is such an exquisite writer. I always call them that nerd, that book like nerd porn. It was sort of like they're reading ancient Greek and they're in this private college, you know, in Vermont, but they're also, you know, like chain smoking and wearing like expensive black trench coats. And it was just like, I was a little pretentious as a teenager, which I think is kind of okay. You know, it's a time to be pretentious and to have sort of grand visions of yourself. And um, just that book completely connected with me. Um, both thematically and from a craft or a, a prose perspective. And so it, and also I liked her because there was a certain, um, like I was aware of the sort of uh, press around Donna Tartt at that time. And, you know, she had come out of Bennington with like um, Jay McInerney and Brett, Eaton, Brett Easton Ellis, and she was sort of the lone female writer in that boys club. And so for me as a young female writer, it was very affirming that um, I happened to like her book better than their books. I also admired them as writers, but I thought, oh, wow, like she's just incredibly gifted and she's excelling in this community where she's the only woman. And um, so it just was sort of a beacon for me. And I you know, soon learned it was going to take a long time to write at the level that she did. She just, I think, is one of those exceptionally gifted minds. And I'm sure she does also work very hard, especially we now know that she prefers to put out maybe a book every 10 years. And I'm sure, you know, there's a lot of um, thinking and drafting and and stuff that goes into the years in between. But um, what a great uh, early book for me to get my hands on. It, it really... Um, was sort of a touchstone for me that I would go back to as I was working on my own novels. 
Very cool. And that and and then you're from Maine too. So that's that's yes. close, it's close uh geographically. Yeah, know. and I was going to um my the early college I went to was in the Berkshires in western Massachusetts. And so it's all sort of um, you know, it can be sort of romantic out there, especially if uh, once I got to Bard, we had these like, you know, old brick buildings with the ivy on them and and in the fall, it would be very beautiful. All the leaves would change color and they'd be sort of like golden and, and orange. And then um, in the winter, it'd be snowy and, you know, it was, it, it was sort of gothy and um, I it, it all appealed to me. And I felt like she captured that very well in the pages of her book. I want to experience that. I do. I do love New England. I've kind of only been through like Rhode Island and Boston. And mm -hmm. I and uh, it's and who was I talking to? I, you know, oh, was it? Terry Gerritsen, that author, mm -hmm. I don't know, um, mm -hmm. her, her, her and her husband were living in Hawaii and they were living mm -hmm. in Hawaii and they were just having a grand old time. She's writing all these grand mm -hmm. old books. And then, and then they went and took a vacation in Maine. They moved to Maine immediately and said, this is paradise. Yeah. And they went from Hawaii to Maine, which I find so cool in a way i've never been to maine but it's just, and it's just like during the winters is when she just curls up and is just working on her books and it's it's almost like the it's almost like uh nature is telling her hey now you're gonna work hard you know <laughs> <laughs> and it, it, i just i just picture fireplaces and snow and hot toddies and let's go skiing yeah i think um there is I mean, obviously, the more uh, picture perfect paradise we would imagine is the Hawaii paradise. But I do think novels are hard work and they go in cycles and you have times when you do need to be very internal and it's better not to have a lot of distractions. And I guess I'm saying there are seasons in a novel because they take so long. I mean, you literally can work on one for multiple seasons for many years. Um, and sometimes it needs to be very focused. And sometimes you might be sharing it with your community and getting notes back. And it might be or you might be putting it aside and saying, I need to go read some other books and, um, you know, just get some food for my creative process. And so I really think that that speaks to me. I mean, I live in Los Angeles. It works for me as a writer and a creative person, but um, I have a lot of love for Maine and I can see why that would be, um, you know, a very inspiring place to write. And certainly there are a ton of amazing writers who uh, live in Maine. Yeah, it's, yeah, the the amount of writers per capita in Maine is pretty high, I think, percentage-wise, because yes. yes. Maine doesn't have a huge population, but, right? Or is yes. that right? Yeah. No, that's very, very <laughs> correct. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And you can just drive by Stephen King's house and go, hey, buddy, how you doing? Yeah, no, he's in the community. I mean, my mom um, was a librarian before she retired at a very small library in Maine, and they got a lot of their budget from literally bake sales. And at Christmas, they would do a wreath sale where they would sell wreaths to members of the community. And um, if they needed a big ticket item, which would be like a new computer or new carpeting for the children's reading room, they would um, apply for a grant from the Stephen and Tabitha King Foundation. And they would, you know, say like, dear Stephen and Tabitha, we need, you know, $4,000 for new carpeting or a new computer. And they would often get the grant. And like, what a beautiful way for him to be a part of the reading and writing community and um, to just stay close to his roots. Oh, totally. Yeah. I, I, I can't read any of his novels. I did. I, they, I, it's just not my thing, but like, uh, I, I understand people like him and I've tried one or 200 pages here and there and they're like, Oh no, but wait, you got to read the stand or whatever. I'm like, all right, I'll give that a try. And then I give it a try. And I'm just like, it just doesn't speak to me. But it's um, but that's okay. But I yeah, I, I love him as a writer. Oh, completely. And that's the nice thing about books is that there's um a book for everyone. There's a thousand books for everyone, right? And um, yeah. I I personally couldn't read him because I'm afraid of the dark. It's funny that I became a mystery writer later in my life, and I grew up 
in the woods of Maine. And so he, I think, is a gateway writer for many young people. Like they find his books when they're sort of in junior high and they start reading him and they love him and they're like tearing through it. And so it opens up the world of reading for them. And I could not be reading him at that age because I was like, whatever is in the woods in this book is outside my house. So that is just (laughs) way too realistic for me. Um, But I do have so much respect for him. And maybe at some point I will, um, you know, cure my fear of the dark and I'll be able to just delicious, you know, indulge in all of his delicious books. So, yeah, I, I just, it's, you know, 600 pages and like the first 150 are description and wandering through. And I'm just, I don't know. I'm, um, but I'm doing that, you know, I'm reading Proust right now. So what am I even talking about? That's just, you know, but, the, but at the same time, Proust is a different, you know, over a hundred years ago and it's France and it's just getting in the middle of all of that. And that's so much fun just to eat up. Um, and, yeah, to like luxuriate in those details. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And the way he does it, I'm just going, it's it's hilarious. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. just, and, and the language, it's some of the language that's used is just so, um, so dated yet so funny. <laughs> it's hilarious. You know, it's, it, it cracks me up. And yeah, anyway. We can go, we, we could we could do a Proust we could do a Proust hour coming up soon. Um give me five years to read Proust and then um, we'll get back to Oh I I, I might almost be done by then and and I only have like Okay, give me ten years, years if I'm just starting now. <laughs> I'll put it in my calendar. The thing about twenty thirty four. Yeah, what well, the, the thing about Proust is everyone I talk to because I never went to college or anything. It's just like I didn't in and, and People I talk to are like, oh yeah, I read that. I read, I read Proust in college, and they only got through the first volume. And I'm like, I, I couldn't have read this in my twenties. Mm-hmm. I need to be in my fifties to read this. This is just like, this is just a literary hug. Uh, mm-hmm. And if, and if I was trying to read this in my twenties, I would be like, I hate this guy. Mm-hmm. So, all right. I'm going to start reading Proust. I'm going to send you an email. I'm not going to take it on book tour with me because I would need like a separate roller bag for my (laughs) Proust. And then I would get a reputation as being obnoxious if I literally carried my Proust around with me in its own roller bag. So I'm going to wait till I come back and have again, because I think it's 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 sort of like the seasons of reading, the seasons of life, you know? And yes. so right now I'm in more of like a fast pace. I'm reading a lot of mysteries. I'm reading a lot of books um, published by my publisher because I want to know what my peers are writing. I want to know what's coming out this season. It's just like in that kind of more fast pace energy. I'm listening to more podcasts because I'm yeah. engaging with the podcast community, which is exciting. Um, but I love the idea of like making a big picture of iced tea when I'm done with uh, with book tour and, and getting into some Proust. So you, I guess I'm going to say thank you, or I'm not sure yet, but I'll let you know. <laughs> yeah, you, you may say, don't lose my email, lose my address. If I see you in LA, don't even look me in the eyes. But then wouldn't that be wonderful if you, um, obviously that's not going to happen, but if that was like the breaking point in a friendship was your recommendation of Proust. I mean, that would be kind of a good thing to fall on your sword for. I mean, I feel like you could feel pretty good about that as a human and and as like a, cit- a literary citizen. <laughs> right, right. Like just, oh, great. There's Sarah just crossed the street. No, you don't understand. She only got through two volumes. <laughs> Sarah, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, my God. It was really fun. And um, we've got like follow up episodes to do. So I'll I'll be back.
Listening to Pirate Cat Radio, KPCRLP, 92.9 FM, Los Gatos and Beyond. Ties my 